Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman. We at Israel Policy Forum are pleased to present this episode as part of a series in partnership with Terrestrial Jerusalem, an Israeli organization committed to identifying and tracking developments in Jerusalem that could impact a two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Each month, we've been discussing different issues shaping the policy conversation on Jerusalem. Jerusalem today isn't at the center of laser-focused media attention in the same way that it was when we recorded some of the previous installments in this series, but that doesn't mean that the issues have disappeared. Now we're going to be checking in on developments on the Temple Mount, Sheikh Jarrah, and Silwan, and with Israel's High Court of Justice due to hold hearings on the status of residents facing pending evictions in both areas in early August, there is a lot to pay attention to. On top of all of this, there's also significant news on the status of the E1 corridor, an area of fundamental importance to developments in Jerusalem and the viability of the two-state solution writ large. As always, we're going to unpack these issues with the help of Danny Seidemann, an attorney based in Jerusalem and founder of the Terrestrial Jerusalem Organization. Thanks for joining, Danny. My pleasure. For our listeners who might have missed some of the earlier episodes, can you take a step back and provide us a brief overview of what was going on with the Sheikh Jarrah evictions issue? Where is this neighborhood? What areas and how many people could be impacted by pending evictions? The Sheikh Jarrah area in question um, is located to the east of the Green Line, the line, the border between Israel and Jordan between 1949 and 1967. Uh, Sheikh Jarrah is a large neighborhood and in part a very upscale neighborhood. Uh, but the area in question uh, has um, two small neighborhoods where Jews resided prior to 1948. And they abandoned um, these neighborhoods. Um, under instructions of the Haganah and the British Mandate. During the 1950s, uh, the Jordanian government, uh, along with the United Nations, built 28 homes for Palestinian refugees on one of the plots in this neighborhood. And those are the areas in question. After the war in 1967, Israel enacted legislation that allows Jews to recover property that they lost um, in the 1948 war it does not allow Palestinians to recover their property, and that is the original sin of Sheikh Jarrah. Today, there are uh, many tens of families living in Sheikh Jarrah. We're talking about several hundred souls, uh, maybe as much as a thousand, who are living on lands that belong to Jews prior to 1948. And there are legal proceedings seeking uh, to evict them from these houses based on the claim that it belongs to Jews. Now, you may say, well, the people who lived there want to go back. No, not one of the original residents has gone back. Not one of the original residents is going back. This is all about settlement activity and ringing the old city. Now, Israel has never done this before. This will be the first large-scale displacement of Palestinians in East Jerusalem since June 10th, 1967, when we raised the Mugrabi Quarter to make way for the Western Wall Plaza. Uh, and at the moment, there are there's a case before the Israeli Supreme Court, which will very much determine uh, the fate of Sheikh Jarrah. And a court hearing has been set for August 2nd 
it is not inconceivable that on August 2nd, it will be decided that the Palestinian residents do not have a legal claim and they will be subject to um, eviction and displacement within a matter of weeks. Uh, it may be deferred after that. But this is coming to a head. And I do not believe that the new Israeli government is fully cognizant of the ramifications of what will happen if the folks in Sheikh Jarrah are evicted from their homes. They don't get it. So is there any possibility for the Palestinian residents of those areas to find recourse from the Israeli government in the case of Sheikh Jarrah? The international community, including the Biden administration, has weighed in rather heavily on this. Uh, most of it behind the scenes, but this was raised by Secretary of State Blinken on his visit here. Uh, this is not being neglected by uh, the international community. And uh, they are cautioning the Israeli government, you don't want to do this. Um, make this go away. And the Israeli government is being told, look, if you do this, it's a humanitarian meltdown. Um, it's going to rip open the question of Israeli sovereignty over East Jerusalem. The displacement of a civilian population under occupation is a war crime under international law. Um, it will almost certainly ignite another round of violence. I don't usually say that. I, I, Jerusalem is far more stable than people think. Uh, but in this case, I think it is not only likely, it is almost inevitable that this will spark another round of violence, and we don't need that. But finally, this has the potential of being transformational in the whole nature of the conflict in two senses. The visuals of significant numbers of Palestinians being displaced from their homes in the heart of Jerusalem by Israelis will... Um, evoke one word among Palestinians in East Jerusalem, in the West Bank, in Gaza, in the refugee camps, in the Palestinian diaspora, around the world, Nakba. This will be a reenactment of the Nakba. It will return us to 1948. And if we evict and displace and expel as if we're in 1948, we're going to go back to a 1948 conflict. And we don't need that. That's transformational. And that is something that will not know the green line, because the Palestinian citizens of Israel are also part of the Nakba in their own eyes. Um, secondly, you know, I have never seen just a groundswell of support for any Palestinian cause in all the years I've been working on this. It's remarkable, and it goes well beyond um, the Palestinian diaspora and activists and uh, progressives. Um, uh, it goes well beyond the hinterland of the usual support groups of the Palestinians. Huge amount of support. If Israel proceeds on this, our allies will not try and defend us. We will not see a decline in the support of Israel. We will see, in many places, a collapse of the support in Israel. We don't need that. And finally, Naftali Bennett, no, it's a Lapid, actually, who was in Brussels last week. And the theme of his visit uh, to meet with European foreign ministers was... We're turning the page. We're starting afresh with the EU. And was well received. This government is being welcomed. It's being given more than a chance. If we engage on this, forget about a new page with Europe. We'll lose Europe. And 
Mr. Bennett, Prime Minister Bennett, you really want to go to Washington to meet President Biden um, with the uh, evictions in Sheikh Jarrah um, having happened or about to happen? Is Really? Israel has the authority. The government has the authority to make this go away. I won't get into the mechanics. Uh, if it is left to the court, the court's going to say, we're just going to rule based on the letter of the law. Uh, and we, you know, if the government has other considerations, we weren't informed about it. It does not look good. You've laid out a very scary scenario, chiefly for the people who live in Sheikh Jarrah and also uh, for Israel and for the Israeli government, the fallout of a decision on this case that would be uh, against uh, the residents who are facing eviction. But is there also a possibility that some kind of status quo holds or the courts and the government kick the can down the road even further? I mean, this hearing that's happening on August 2nd was supposed to happen uh, several months ago and was then postponed. So is that also uh, something that's on the table? You know, I I had hoped that the court would say, look, we don't need this. <laughs> Uh, and defer things. You know, they don't want to write a verdict. They certainly, you know, they, the verdict that they could possibly write is we're not going to take the case on a second appeal. Uh, because if they write a verdict in support of the settlers, they won't be able to go on sabbatical to, to Palo Alto. Um, because they will be viewed by the international community of jurisprudence as complicit in war crimes. And if they rule against the settlers, their kids will be going to school with bodyguards. They don't need this. This shouldn't belong to the courts. The Israeli government can defer this. The, 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 the judge hearing this case has indicated that she is impatient and she will not let this be dragged out. But the government of Israel does have a number of ways where it can make this case um, deferred indefinitely. It will not secure the fates of the residents in Sheikh Jarrah, but it will leave them in their homes uh, for a good time into the future, perhaps indefinitely. That is not impossible. It's not politically suicidal. But in order to do that, the Israeli government has to be impressed about the non-routine consequences there will be in pursuing uh, these large-scale um, uh, uh, evictions. Uh, this will not be a routine home demolition or another settlement. Um, as I said, this has the potential of being transformational, and we have to convey that to this government. And by the way, they are not hostile to listening to engagement, but that's not enough. They have to muster a bit of political courage and, and do what they have to do. And of course, even if the case is indefinitely postponed or a decision is indefinitely postponed, uh, it's better than displacement, but there's still complications that come with the status of the residents of the area who've been deemed protected tenants. So they can't, they can live in their homes, but they can't renovate their homes or, uh, you know, other, some such restrictions. It, it, it is a very fragile and uh, vulnerable situation. In some ways, the um, residents of Sheikh Jarrah are an allegory for all of the residents of East Jerusalem. Uh, 
The residents of East Jerusalem are not without rights. They're out with, with they're without political rights. They have right to property, unless we really want that property, and then we take it away. They have a right to live here, unless we really want them gone, and then they'll be gone. Uh, they have rights, but those rights are alienable rights. They can be taken from, they, they hang by a thread. And that is the fate of all of the 355,000 Palestinians living in East Jerusalem. Um, that is also even more so the fate of the Palestinians um, who are living in Sheikh Jarrah. Their rights to live in their homes hang by a thread. Now, Sheikh Jarrah was what was kind of the rallying cry back in May, the item that was attracting the most media attention and hashtags. And, uh, you know, as you said, really drove a lot of focus on this issue. Uh, but there's also something going on in certain areas of Silwan, also outside the old city in East Jerusalem. Can you tell us what's happening there? Uh, there are two different foci uh, um, of potential displacement in Silwan. One is in what was the Yemenite quarter in the 19th century, um, Batan al-Hawa, on the ridge opposite the city of David, uh, Wadi Khilwe. And there, there are several hundred additional Palestinians um, facing eviction proceedings and in legal circumstances that are a bit different, but also very similar to the ones in Sheikh Jarrah. And um, a verdict will be handed down in that in a matter of weeks. Um, so that both Sheikh Jarrah and Batan al-Hawa in Silwan are clear and present dangers. Between the city of David and Batan al-Hawa is a wadi, uh, a gully, riverbed, a dry riverbed, uh, um, Wadi Nar, the Kidron Valley, that starts a little bit to the west of that and ends up at the Dead Sea. Uh, and it is the plan of the Jerusalem municipality um, harnessed by the settlers to demolish um, close to 100 homes there. And there are currently 78 outstanding demolition orders that could displace many hundreds of people as well. Those um, demolition orders have been stayed by the court until August in order to give the residents an opportunity to uh, legitimize their housing through a planning process. Uh, there have been two demolitions in the Bustan area recently. There may be another one coming in a few days. I do not yet see this as an indication of an Israeli policy or a policy of the municipality of Jerusalem to demolish large numbers of homes in Al-Bustan, Silwan. Now, it sounds terrible, but the two houses that were demolished were in the framework of Israel's routine demolition policy and not the large-scale uh, displacement that we fear. But the situation in Al-Bustan uh, has to be monitored very closely. In terms of urgency, Sheikh Jarrah, Batan al-Hawa Silwan, Batan al-Hawa Silwan, Sheikh Jarrah, don't take your eye off the ball. Those are the most important and the most urgent things on the agenda between Israelis and Palestinians, including the issues relating to Gaza. So before we turn to the next issue, what should people be watching most closely as we approach the court hearings on Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan in early August? No, um, 
I recently met a senior diplomat who, from an important country who made the rounds among the ministers in the Israeli government. And he said to me that in all of his meetings, he uh, raised the issue of Sheikh Jarrah and did not encounter hostility. Uh, there was an awareness of Sheikh Jarrah. There was no awareness of the significance and the potential ramifications of Sheikh Jarrah. And then he said, you know what scares them most? Um, the position of the Democratic members of Congress and the Democratic Party. They're scared of the response. They're very apprehensive of losing the younger generation, the Democratic Party, and the Biden administration. And that means that um, we have a government, unlike Netanyahu, who is dismissive. I mean, Netanyahu is a Republican, <laughs> but uh, was dismissive of uh, these kinds of concerns. We have an attentive government here. Uh, being attentive isn't enough. But um, uh, today, uh, Congress and the American Jewish community are familiar with Sheikh Jarrah. I think understand what's at stake. There have been a number of statements. Um, I'm not sure that you'll be able to know if the matter has been solved. I'm not sure that I'll be able to know. We'll only find out later. But we are um, trying to get messages through to Prime Minister Bennett and Foreign Secretary Lapid for the most part, perhaps uh, Benny Gantz, the defense minister, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. You, you, you have no idea what awaits you. And the government will not survive this. Have no doubt about this. This government will not survive the displacements in Shekhtarach. We'll have to see what happens next on that question. I'm sure we're going to have a lot to talk about when it comes to Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan. Uh, but right now, I want to turn to the question of Jordan-Israel relations, which is something that is really important to events in Jerusalem. But for our listeners, could you elaborate on why this relationship between Israel and Jordan is so relevant to what goes on in Jerusalem and what's been going on in recent weeks with that relationship since the new Israeli government has taken office. The general context must always begin that the peace agreement between Jordan and Israel is a strategic asset of the state of Israel. Uh, it is enormously stabilizing. Uh, it is important to our national security um, uh, the relationship uh, between the armies, intelligence communities, etc., are good, and they have spared Israel a lot of grief and perhaps some blood. Um, in the waning years of uh, Netanyahu's tenure of office, um, he became increasingly dismissive of Jordanian concerns and increasingly dismissive of King Abdullah. Now, there's been bad blood between them since uh, the 1990s when uh, Netanyahu's government tried to assassinate uh, Hamas activist Khaled Mashal in Amman. Uh, but in the final year of the Trump-Netanyahu era, uh, dismissiveness uh, morphed into contempt. There is a specific Jerusalem angle to this. Under the agreement between Israel and Jordan, Article 9, uh, Jordan has custodianship, a special role uh, on Haram al-Sharif, the Temple Mount. 
and that was being diluted by Netanyahu. Uh, it is now, only now, uh, becoming fully clear just how much damage Netanyahu's um, policies have inflicted upon the Israel-Jordanian uh, relationship, much to the consternation of the security and intelligence establishment in Israel, who are basically not consulted on this. In the weeks that um, have uh, followed the uh, formation of this new government, there has been an effort to rebuild that relationship. Uh, it's not a trivial task, but it is going reasonably well. It is clear that uh, Bennett um, has adopted the traditional uh, approach to Jordan, that Jordan is a stabilizing um, factor. Uh, there uh, has been a meeting between the king and uh, Bennett, which was leaked by somebody. Uh, they wanted to keep it secret. I have my suspicions who might th who that might be, and he has violet-colored hair. Um, and minister, meeting with the foreign minister. Now, the, the real work is how one restores a shattered status quo on the Temple Mount. And that is something that needs to be cobbled out between Israel and Jordan in the weeks and months to come. That is no easy matter because uh, the status quo has been eroded. There are different interpretations of it. That is going to take time. But that would not have been possible under Netanyahu. It is indeed possible under this government. But I do not want to underestimate the difficulties that are entailed. So you've alluded to the damage that took place between Israel and Jordan under Netanyahu. How does this recent flurry of activity on the Israel-Jordan front, the Bennett-Abdullah meeting, the call between King Abdullah and President Herzog, how does that compare with the Israeli approach under Netanyahu? I, I'm, I'm not a participant, but I have a front row seat. <laughs> um, and I watched this up close, the deterioration, uh, and had my suspicions. I suspected that the United States, Kushner and Friedman, in collusion with um, uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, and Netanyahu were going to dilute the Jordanian role on the Temple Mount um, uh, in order to replace it, partially at least, with the Saudis, or the Emiratis. Uh, there was a, an article by David Ignatius in the Washington Post to the effect that the palace coup, which was revealed in recent weeks uh, in Jordan, was concocted by uh, the United States, uh, Israel, and Saudi Arabia, uh, with the Mossad sending messages to Jordanian intelligence, this is Netanyahu, it's not us. Um, I think that that report by David Ignatius is extremely credible. It certainly meshes with what I witnessed, although I only witnessed small windows of this. That has changed. It is clear that uh, Bennett uh, wants to restore good relations personally between himself and King Abdallah, but more importantly, the strategic interests of both Jordan and Israel require there to be good relations between the states. And um, Bennett and Lapid have taken steps in that direction, and they have been fairly well received on the Jordanian side. 
What potential is there for Israel and Jordan to work together on questions related to Jerusalem, especially on the Temple Mount? Restoring or rebuilding a status quo on the Temple Mount is going to be extremely difficult. First of all, I would like to say um, uh, it's not enough to bring in the Israelis and the Jordanians. You need to triangulate. And there's the Palestinian role. The Jordanian role perhaps takes the lead, but there are Palestinians and Palestinian Authority equities on the mount, and they have to be factored in as well. Um, Israeli public opinion has changed significantly since 1967, uh, and is um, parts of Israeli public opinion are far more aggressive in questions relating to the Temple Mount. It's not going to be trivial to reestablish um, uh, a situation where, I'm quoting Netanyahu, Muslims pray on the mount, non-Muslims do not pray. They visit the Temple Mount. We have a very problematic police department, uh, not only vis-a-vis um, Palestinians, but Palestinian citizens of Israel and protesters against Netanyahu. They are responsible for maintenance of order in cooperation with the Waqf, the Islamic Dominant officials. Uh, and in past years, there was very good cooperation between the two. Now there's been a rupture. Um, and the police department is, I would say, more hostile towards uh, the Palestinians than what we've witnessed before. Five years ago, the police would have been a stabilizing factor on the Temple Mount the stabilizing factor. Today, um, they are in legion with the Temple Mount movement. They're a problem, and they will need to be retrained uh, to the sensitivity and the complexity of the uh, task at hand. And and we have a minister of internal security, minister of police, Omer Barlev, who's quite capable of doing that. Uh, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to take time, and a lot of people are asking themselves, how do we begin to rebuild from the scorched earth uh, left behind by Netanyahu in matters relating to the status quo on the Temple Mount? While we're on the subject of the Temple Mount, we're approaching both significant Jewish and Muslim religious observances in the coming days. Uh, Tisha B'Av, when Jews mourn the destruction of the two ancient temples in Jerusalem, starts this weekend, and Eid al-Adha next week. Is there potential for friction around the Temple Mount, given the close proximity of these two holidays? Uh, I believe there is the potential for friction, and I know that this is being watched very closely, not only by um, Israeli security and police and intelligence, but by the international community. Uh, we're in something of a bubble, because um, events on the Temple Mount, uh, along with Sheikh Jarrah, um, and, and Damascus Gate were the detonators that ignited this uh, past round of violence. After the violence, and, and, and during the violence, there were no Jewish visits to the Mount. And they resumed only after the ceasefire, and they resumed in small numbers. So uh, the weeks that have followed the ceasefire have been relatively quiet. Um, the police are limiting the number of Jewish groups of, and by the way, I say Jewish groups, these are not people who are going to visit uh, as guests. They're going 
to say, you know, we're coming to take this from you. Uh, the groups are becoming le- have become they're less numerous and they're smaller. Uh, on the other hand, if you have watched the Jerusalem march a couple of weeks ago um, and saw the kids of the Israeli right wing um, nationalist kids outside of Damascus Gate shouting death to the Arabs, they were all wearing T-shirts and on their T-shirts uh, was uh, a picture of the temple. Uh, this has not gone away. Um, at the moment, I do not detect a rise in tensions. That could change within a matter of minutes. So this needs to be monitored closely. I do not see uh, what we have seen in past years, sort of a cyclical buildup of tension before a, a potential explosion. I don't see that. Once again, another item that I think we're going to have to come back to in a couple of weeks when we speak again in August and see how that plays out. But before we close out this episode, there's one more issue that we have to touch upon, and that is the question of E1. The Higher Planning Council, the body under the Israeli civil administration responsible for settlement plans in the West Bank, announced a hearing of public objections to building plans in the E1 area, which is to the east of Jerusalem, to be held on August 9th. So, you know, for our listeners, as you're trying to visualize how all these events fall into place, remember the Sheikh Jarrah hearing is on August 2nd. So I have a few questions for you here. First of all, what is E1 and why is it so significant? Uh, immediately to the east of Jerusalem, two miles, nine miles to the east of Jerusalem, is the third largest settlement in the West Bank, Maled Dumim. It's got close to 40,000 residents. The E1 area is the uh, desert area, 12 and a half kilometers in size, between East Jerusalem and Maled Dumim. And it has been the Israeli intention of the Israeli government to build that up with tens of thousands of settler units uh, ever since 1996. E1 has long been considered a doomsday settlement because it will dismember and fragment the West Bank, dividing, deriving a wedge through the West Bank and dismembering it into a northern canton and a southern canton, making the creation of any kind of contiguous and viable Palestinian state impossible. And secondly, it will uh, detach or encircle East Jerusalem and cut it off from its environs in the West Bank, making a Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem an impossibility. As a result of that, every American president up to Trump, and we don't know what Trump said on this, uh, has read Israel the Riot Act. You're not to do this. And every European leader, every single one without exception, have said, don't dare. And a couple times Israel has proceeded to do something on E1, and we have always backed down. And that includes Netanyahu on, on a couple of occasions. Um, no Israeli government to date has dared to move towards the implementation of E1. That changed. It changed yesterday when these hearings were announced, which is a significant step towards implementation. That takes me to my next question. You know, we hear a lot about the different stages in the settlement process. Where in the timeline of settlement planning does this public hearing fall? If the hearings take place, and I'm not sure that they will, uh, if they take place, um, there could be a decision rejected 
the objections to the plan uh, the same day. Um, the rejection of all objections to the plan is a foregone conclusion. This is the independent state of Judea and Samaria ruling itself. They will approve it. Uh, the defense minister has to sign it. That means Benny Gantz has to sign this plan. That's not a foregone conclusion. But assuming that it is signed into law, um, I would say you would have about nine months uh, before that approval takes place. And then um, one could expect uh, weeks or a few months later uh, tenders to begin construction of the first 3,400 units there. So uh, at the moment, this does not have the urgency of Sheikh Jarrah and um, uh, Silwan. Uh, this hearing is a tripwire. It is not clear to me that this was done with the knowledge and consent of Lapid, Gantz, and, uh, and Prime Minister Bennett. Uh, it may be one of the uh, pinless hand grenades left behind by Netanyahu or the settlers testing this government. I, it's hard for me to believe that you take the most toxic radioactive settlement um, uh, and uh, as you're trying to rebuild Israel's foreign relations, you decide to proceed in that. I just I, I find it difficult to believe. But we will see. I mean, um, uh, this has been raised before. It's always gone away. This is not a lost cause. It has to be treated very seriously. This is not a trivial matter, but um, it is far from a lost cause. I feel like we will see is kind of becoming the watchword of this podcast. But unfortunately, that is kind of what is going to have to happen because the outcome here, as with the other items that we discussed, isn't fully clear. In any case, Danny, I want to thank you, as always, for taking the time to share your insights and expertise with our audience. Thank you. And to our listeners, if you're interested in following up on one of these topics, we will be having a video briefing on Tuesday, July 20th, with Noah Landau from Haaretz and Aaron Magid on the state of Israel-Jordan relations. You can register for that at ipf.li forward slash July 20 web. That's the numbers two zero. And we hope to see you there. Until our next episode, stay safe, stay healthy, and thanks for tuning in.